Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your guilt at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. And Lord, as Jesus talks about practical yet challenging things, anger in our hearts, hell of fire, and so on in this passage, O Lord, would you give us your Holy Spirit to understand well the things of God and the word of God and bring us Lord, into the presence of the crucified and resurrected one who gave these words to us so many years ago. Father, for your glory, do a good work in us and give us faith. We pray and plead with you, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. A little crowdsourcing to start us off. I'm going to give you a movie line and then you tell me back what movie it's from. So I'll give you a moment to think about movies. And here we go. I'm always angry. Avengers. Absolutely right. What character? Yes. All right. So we're going to start off by talking about the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, a.k.a. Bruce Banner from the Avengers movie, the first one, MCU, when did that come out? 2012 or thereabouts. Climactic moment when a threat is bearing down on the whole team and only Hulk is strong enough to stop it. He's in regular human Bruce Banner mode at that point and Captain America, the leader and best Avenger, tells the Hulk, Hulk or Banner, sorry, Banner, now would be a good time for you to get angry. And then turns back to Cap and the team and says, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. And then instantaneously he transforms and then punches the bad guy. And the backstory in that scene is that supposedly Bruce Banner can only transform into the Hulk when he gets really, really revved up, when he gets really, really angry. And, hey, we need the Hulk this second. Now you need to get angry. (gasps) But the secret. Internally, Banner says, I am always angry. So he can turn any time 
not just when outwardly there are circumstances that occur for him to be able to first get angry and then turn into the Hulk. And it makes sense for the character. It is a nice dramatic beat for Banner Hulk as well because he's had a tortured existence, this misunderstood monster who lives in fear of losing his temper and causing damage that's really hard to repair and that sort of thing. So it makes sense, including that he's always angry. And let's look in the mirror just for a moment here. It's not just anti-heroes like the Hulk himself, but we are all a little Hulk-esque. Haven't you had your Hulk out moments? Whether far in the past or more recently, or even this past week, or maybe you had a really bad Sunday morning up until this point. The, there, there are many times when we have our moment for confession of sin, and I'm confessing a Hulk out moment from that morning. It, it didn't really have to, time did not have to elapse, elapse long before getting to the confession of sin moment there. But then, even when we don't have those Hulk out moments, I think for a lot of us, a lot of the time, it's simply the case that it would be true of us to admit, I'm always angry. It's just who we are. It's part of our core. It's part of our identity. So do an inventory this way. Who are you mad at? What are you mad at? Why? It's really easy, isn't it, to pull up that list and say, oh, yeah, well, if you ask the question, just give me a split second. I'm mad at this person, this person, this person, this, this person, that thing, that thing, that thing. And even though we might qualify it and say, yeah, but I'm, I'm not mad at them right now, it's not the case that I'm always angry. I'm always mad. But isn't it also true again that whenever that specific file of that person or that incident or that life circumstance is pulled up in our minds and hearts, we are angry all over again. And we get so angry when that file is pulled that if we're honest with ourselves, even though time has passed, we haven't worked through it. We haven't processed it. We just forgot about it for a little while, or we just buried it. But when we think of those people, those circumstances, those things, and get angry all over again, it's like we're a computer or a device that suddenly reverts back to a previous operating system. And we're just back there, as if there hadn't been more time that had passed since then. We are angry. And we've talked about this in relation to the other seven deadly sins that we've talked about so far. Think through, too, how anger shapes you. How anger so much is a part of you. When we're angry, as we're angry, it shapes how we interpret things, how we feel, how we act, what we avoid, all because we're angry. And we were talking about this at the men's Bible study that Scott Floven led. You can sign up for that, guys, if, if you want to come next month. It's a really good study. Talking about, quote-unquote, respectable sins. But anger was the one that we were talking about yesterday, apropos of the sermon that occurring one day later. 
We were talking there about how anger for us, when, we, when we're mad and angry, it's an energy hog. It's a battery hog. It's an energy drain. Isn't it true that being good and mad, being angry is exhausting? It takes so much attention, so much focus, so much battery, so much time. And our anger and our angry narratives that we string in our heads and go over again and again and again and again, whether it's past stuff that we revolve around in our heads or whether it's angry fantasies about what we would do or what might happen to this person that we're really mad at. And then we play those movies in our head again and again and again. They need fed and they need fed and they need fed. I'm always angry. But we can also approach it from a different perspective. Hey, wait a second. Is anger really that bad? Isn't it kind of normal? Isn't it just part of who we are? You're telling me don't get angry? Don't you know what you did to me? Are you pretending like that didn't happen? Are you saying I'm not valuable? Don't you know the full story? Haven't I just told that to you? And so you see there are some complexities related to anger. And yet, isn't it true that the more angry you are, the less you love? Point blank. The more angry you are, the less you love. The more anger you have inside of you that you keep feeding and keep feeding and keep feeding, that decreases your capacity to love God and love other people necessarily. So what might Jesus of Nazareth have to say to us about these things? Talking about anger in three parts from here, I want to talk about an authority question, then some anger questions, then a way forward. So authority question, anger questions, and then a way forward. So this is one, anger, wrath, is one of the seven deadly sins, and Jesus, the Son of Man, also agrees that anger is a big deal. Our sermon text from this morning, Matthew chapter 5, comes from the famous Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. And Jesus ostensibly thinks that anger is such a big deal that really towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that goes from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, anger is front and center. And the way that Jesus begins to talk about it is striking, the beginning of our passage. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you. Now you might gloss over that because Jesus says some really hard things and cutting things in just a moment about anger here. But this construction, this setup that he repeats a couple more times in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Where did we hear that before? It's actually in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number 6, Exodus chapter 20. You have heard that it was said in the Bible... But I say to you, what Jesus is doing here is he is radically relocating the authority of Almighty God 
from the Ten Commandments, from the Hebrew Scriptures, as if to consider all of that stuff is really good, but only a preview of the coming attraction, which is me. I am the final and full authority of God. Listen to me. Right before this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, sort of as a preamble, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, not a jot or a tittle, not even a tiny stroke will pass away from them until all is accomplished, all is fulfilled. Jesus is the center and fulfillment of all of God's story. And at the same time, we might think in the popular imagination that Jesus is a really, go really easygoing guy. And we might think, again, popular conception, Old Testament, bad, mean, evil. Jesus, good, nice, easygoing. That's actually a very under-nuanced reading of both the Old Testament and what Jesus says in the New Testament. Jesus, when he's talking about anger here, first drawing on the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, he's not saying, but actually, don't worry about it. He's going in the opposite direction, taking the command that is good and intensifying it and says it's even deeper and more, and the scope of this prohibition is so much wider. I've never killed anybody, so I'm off the hook. Jesus says that was never the point of this commandment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, not as bad as, but along the continuum of murder, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you say really bad things against other people, even in your heart, even if you don't say it out loud, you have broken this commandment. It's an intensifier, a really big deal. And as we think in this late modern Western moment, there is some overlap, I think, between some secular conceptions here about anger and what we find in the Bible. There, there's overlap, but it's not exactly the same thing. So there may be some overlap and some commonality where we can agree across the faith divide. Yeah, anger is not a great thing. We probably shouldn't. We're probably too angry. Where you draw the line, we can disagree about. But are, are we too angry as a culture and as a society? Yes, we should do it less. Because, and this is where it starts to separate, Secular view, it's unhealthy. Or it can offend other people and cause harm. Those things are true. But the biblical idea of anger says that it's not just a wellness issue or an offense issue. It's a sin issue. It goes deeper than that. Not just these other things. Well, okay, if you're angry to the point where you start to offend other people, then that's bad. But if you don't offend anybody else, it's okay. Or anger's fine, but if it starts to be unhealthy for you in certain ways, then stop. Jesus strikes much deeper to the root and says, repent and obey the gospel. Don't be as angry. And it is in this cultural moment and every cultural moment a stretch, faith exercise for us to wonder can I actually trust God that this command is good? 
When Jesus says, don't be angry, can I actually trust God with my angry self? Is this good for me? Is it right? Is it true? And we have so many of those moments, again, not just now, but all over the world and, and throughout the ages. Can, can I trust Jesus with my ideological self, my political self? We might have different ideas about my generosity self, where for some of us, when Jesus tells me to be generous, okay, that's just like benevolent feelings towards other people. Jesus comes back and says, yeah, but it also means keeping less money for yourself so you can give more of your money to other people. Then we're like, I don't trust you with that. Hands off my wallet. Or my sexuality self. Or my lifestyle self. Or my vacation self. God, I need me time. So when I'm on duty, you have that, but then not this. Or my Sunday self, but my work self is different. Or whatever it is, can I trust Jesus across those divides? It's hard. It's an exercise. But when it comes to anger, understand that when Jesus says, don't do it, it's good for us. Because anger robs us of so much. We've been referencing here in the sermon series John Cassian, an ancient monk, that was one of the earlier developers of this list, this taxonomy of sins, and this is what he said about anger. We must, with God's help, eradicate the deadly poison of anger from the depths of our souls. This is a reflection quote at the beginning of the worship folder. So long as he, the demon of anger, dwells in our hearts and blinds the eyes of the heart with his somber disorders, we can neither discriminate for what is our good, nor achieve spiritual knowledge, nor fulfill our good intentions, nor participate in true life, and our intellect will remain impervious to the contemplation of the true divine light. What Cassian is saying here, it's not just that you're angry and it doesn't affect anything else. It affects everything else. We can't tell what's good for us anymore. We can't connect with God or achieve spiritual knowledge. We can't follow through on our good intentions or participate in what's really living in true life. All of that is off the table because we are so angry. And understand that this is a big enough deal to Jesus that he warns us and says, you are liable to the hell of fire when we're this angry. And so understand, it's a big deal and it shapes us, and it twists us, and it harms us, and it hurts other people, and it's disobedient to the living God. There's an authority question now. And let's ask some questions. I said anger is a complex subject about anger itself. We can say, try to park the car from a different direction. I'm always angry. I mean, everybody gets angry. And is Jesus saying here, say, when something bad is done to me, and if naturally I respond in that moment in an angry way, is, is that wrong? Do I have to repent of something like that? It's, it's just a normal human response. And there is some nuance here. So Bible scholars that look at this passage, and I think this is in keeping with the tenor of the scriptures overall, will look to what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount and point to, this is everybody's favorite. Some of you really love participial constructions. This is for you. When Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, that who is angry is a participle in the original Greek language here. And this type of construction, regardless of the content of the verb, the participle in this case, whoever is angry with his brother is less about this one and done 
one-time act, but it's more an ongoing state. Whoever in an ongoing way is angry. And so Bible scholars, both ancient and modern, have observed it's less about when somebody hits you and you get angry. Of course. But if you let it fester and grow and grow and grow, and it becomes an ongoing resentment, that's where you've got to stop. That's where you've got to repent. And there's biblical language across the Old New Testament, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Have you heard that before? Again, that seems to leave some space for, yes, there's going to be moments when we're angry and it is just part of who we are. If you think about it from this perspective too, from the creation horizon standpoint, our anger is actually self-affirming. We are made in the image of God, and there are some cases if you're wronged in certain ways and you're not angry about it, you're actually not valuing the fact that you yourself are made in the image of God. And so it's good and healthy and biblical to register those things. And culture is crazy too. Let, let's also understand that there's a lot of studies out there that I don't think should be disbelieved that say there are different standards of anger for men and women. When a guy gets angry, it's a lot easier to look at that guy and say, that's a strong, decisive man right there. But then when, when a woman gets angry, she's so emotional and being hysterical. Why can't you just calm down? Those things are all real. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here, keeping these like double standards. But for anger for ourselves, we need to name it and change it. For one thing, listen to your anger. A great question to ask yourself or ask a loved one, especially when anger flares up, a great initial question is, why can't you stop? I may or may not admit that I have tried that with loved ones myself and to middling results, let's say. But instead, why are you so angry? That's a good question. One researcher has put it this way, saying that we should listen to our anger. Anger is one of the densest forms of communication. It conveys more information more quickly than almost any other type of emotion. And it does an excellent job of forcing us to listen to and confront problems we might otherwise avoid. Unpack your anger. Get at different threads of it. And our anger tells us things both about injustice out there and idolatries in here. We talk at Liberty Collingswood how we want to imbibe and live out and walk out a third-way walk and worldview that's captive to neither the polarities on any side of our culture. And so we can be people of biblical nuance and say when it comes to anger, we want to neither collapse all of it onto the individual who is wronged and say it's actually just all your fault. How dare you be angry? Why are you such a bad person? But neither should we collapse it in the other direction and say, well, the good news is that it's all out there. It's all external to you. Very often it's not. And Jesus of Nazareth, who gave these words to us, calls us in moments of anger and relationships that are broken and stressed by anger to move forward to one another in forgiveness and reconciliation. And I've told a number of you, of you this privately when I've had the opportunity to try to help you with different conflicts 
in your own life and be a listening ear and a dialogue partner about it. Forgiving somebody else that's wronged you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's both a principle and a process, and you need both. It should be a principle. In principle, are we called, if you're a follower of Jesus, as Christians, are we called to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us? Yes, that's in the Bible. And so if I'm wronged by you, in principle, I should forgive you. But then the Bible also allows for the fact that that takes time. And there are processes there. But if you don't agree in principle that you should forgive somebody that's wronged you, you're never going to get there. But then again, we don't collapse it in the other direction and say the principle's all you need. Because anger is such and hurt and harm is such that it takes some time to walk through processing steps to actually get to where that principle is. So we need both. And if you have been wronged and are angry, and you confront the other person, and by and large, I think that's a good thing to do. And there are biblical encouragements in that direction for sure. When you confront the other person, here's, I think, the biblical innovation. You're doing that not to get even, not to punch back, not to give back the hurt that's been given to you, but you're doing because it's right and it's good and it's healing for everybody. To give another person the opportunity to show him or her their sin. And isn't it true again that our world is groaning, whether on an individual basis or more widely, because all we know how to do is practice fight or flight. And there is so much punching back. Take, for example, what began in the fall and is ongoing with Israel and Gaza, Israel, Palestine. And I don't say this because I haven't been paying attention, I have, but for all of the time that I've put into podcast listening and reading about this conflict, it's still hard for me to know how to make heads or tails of it, in large part because there is a long history of punching back. And where does that leave us in the present? I'm not sure. But both sides are able to say, we did this because you did that. And then the other side says, yeah, we did that because you did this. Yeah, but we did that because of that. And it just goes back and forth forever. Punching back, punching back, punching back is the story of our world. But it's not the story of Jesus. But to get to that different place, we need Jesus to get to where we can move forward. How do we move forward? Let's put it this way. We've been talking a little bit already about creation horizon. Triage your anger out according to creation and fall and redemption. These are the three major arcs of the biblical story that spin forward to us from the scriptures, culminating in Jesus. According to the creation horizon, once again, hurt hurts, to put it that way. It does. And when we register harm that's been done to us or injustice that we receive, According to the image of God in us, we feel it, we register it. But then from the fallen horizon, because we're all broken in sin, over and over again, to situations that do make us angry, we give ungodly responses. That is so common. And in my personal experience for myself, and then also pastoral experiences, that part is really, really tricky. And that's when the defenses go up and say, wait a second, are you negating the wrong that's been done to me? And I'll say, no, I'm not. 
but it takes two to tango. You've heard me say before from the pulpit, Jesus calls you to be a shock absorber and not a spring. Whether it's your family life, your marriage, your parents, your kids, your teachers, your school, your third spaces, your communities, your workspaces, Jesus invites you to be a shock absorber and not a spring. When difficult things come your way, for the sake of others, take more of it onto your plate than you might justifiably need to for the sake of others. So that you can be a person of peace. And don't be a spring that just amplifies every bit of anxiety and anger that comes your way. Those people are really hard to deal with, and I am one of them sometimes. So that's creation horizon, that's fallen horizon, and then also the redemptive horizon. In so many different ways, bring it to Jesus, crucified and resurrected. If you've been hurt, if you've been harmed, we can think to ourselves, ultimately speaking, who sees this? Will there be a reckoning? And the news of the Bible that I believe is good news, and it's whether you're a committed Christian, somebody who struggles with aspects of biblical Christianity, somebody who's skeptical of spiritual things in general, wherever you are, this is something for you to weigh. It's news from the scriptures. Is it good? I think it is. There is no sin in the world that is unseen and unreckoned. It all is. And as I read the scriptures, and I, don't, I can't point to a specific Bible verse that says it this succinctly, but I think it's true. Ultimately speaking, the judgment seats of sin are two. There are two locations where sin is judged and all of the cosmos and for all time. Either the cross or hell. Those are the two. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all that come to him in faith. All of your sins are seen and reckoned there by a holy, just, and loving God. But apart from that, they're still on ourselves. And Jesus uses the language of hell in this passage. And I know that if you struggle with all this stuff, this is the deep end of the swimming pool, or one of them, when it comes to robust Christianity. But you can also turn it around. If you're somebody, I think, who says, all we have is this material world, nothing above, nothing below, no God, none of that stuff. To ask the same question, who ultimately sees and reckons with sin and wrongdoing? The answer on that worldview, nobody and nothing. So all of that harm that's come to you, all of the injustice in the world, ultimately who sees and who reckons with it? Nobody and nothing. It doesn't matter. And whether it's an awesome thing or a harmful thing, a just thing or an unjust thing, a good deed or a bad deed, a good thought or a bad thought, it's gonna wash out in the cosmic laundry just like everything else. But God sees and God knows. But that's not the only way that we can bring all this stuff to the cross. 
take steps of faith towards Jesus and let Jesus stand in your gaps of pain and anger. Where there are going to be situations in your life that, humanly speaking, apart from a miracle, or in some ways just by limits of our finitude, you know, say somebody has wronged you that's died, there, there's no way that you can reconcile with that person, just by definition, right? Or otherwise, we're going to have gaps where we will have to sit with unrequited anger. Let Jesus be present with you in those gaps. Jesus, I'm never going to have the reconciliation and restitution that I long for, but in a deeper way, Jesus, would you, who made reconciliation and restitution for me, for the world on the cross, and conquered sin, death, and the devil on the cross and rose again, would the reality of the presence of your good work and love for me be with me in these parts that just feel broken? And it doesn't make everything magically better, but it makes it bearable. And it puts a different frame around it so that we can keep going. And understand this about the cross as well. If you believe in Jesus, you have nothing to defend. If you believe in Jesus, there is nothing that you have to defend from a couple different angles. One, if somebody comes and confronts you with a sin, with something you've done wrong, and this is true of me as a pastor. I, I hope I'm not somebody that's defensive if somebody comes to me with something that I may have done wrong. To the extent that that's true of me, I hope, that's because I believe in Jesus and if you come to me with something I've done wrong, I should be able to say back, sorrowful about my own sin, but glad in the good news of Jesus, you're not telling me anything that the cross already hasn't. The cross already says that I'm a broken, messed up person that does a lot of wrong things, including harms other people, although I shouldn't. You're just filling in the fine print about what the big print of the cross already gives me all the time. So I don't have to be defensive. But then there's another aspect of me not having to be defensive too, because whether it's you or me, not because I'm a pastor, just because I'm a person, or the other way around, we're, we're not the ultimate judges of one another. And so if there's a genuine difference of perspective about something, that's not the end of the world. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to cancel one another. Because God is the ultimate judge, and we can be at peace. We can just try to make a way forward, and that's okay. There's space for us to say, and we need to do this gently. Occasionally, it's the case that your truth is not the truth. And those are two different things. They're not coextensive with one another. And so under the auspices of grace, we can have some of those difficult back-and-forth conversations. And also another perspective of the cross here is that in Jesus, you're already completely forgiven. The one that sees and reckons with sin, if you believe in Jesus, you're already in the clear forever. And so all the stuff that can feel so big to us in the moments of our anger, that's just the small potatoes. That's, that, that's the cleanup. But the main event, the main battle's already been fought.
And so we can move forward and hope. Give me a couple more minutes and then we'll wrap up. I really believe this is hope for the world and that this is good news. N.T. Wright, an Episcopal scholar in England, has written in a place about how for all the wrong that the church has done over the years, and it's real, Jesus' presence in the world has done a lot of good. The effect of Jesus' giving of his own life, the example of love, non-retaliation, the kingdom way of confronting evil with goodness, Jesus' taking of the world's hatred and anger onto himself, and way beyond all of these, the defeat of the powers of evil, the blotting out of the sins of the world, the love of God shining through the dark clouds of wickedness, all of this is now to be seen around the world. It is seen not only in the millions who worship Jesus and thank him for his death, but in the work of healing which flows from it, and reconciliation and hope for communities and for individuals. The world is indeed a different place because of what Jesus did in his death. There are so many ongoing effects of the cross in the world that are good. And the expressions of, tr of the church of Jesus Christ around the world, including this one, let it be, let us be a showcase of the grace of Jesus Christ in such a way that we do anger well. And that we have tools. And that we repent when we need to repent when we don't over-defend and become defensive, when forgiveness and reconciliation marks and flows out of this community to the world. And I wonder if in such a nasty state that our world is in today, that this might be a role of the church to lead in this way in the world. Ten years or so ago, there was a guy, I, don't, I haven't read a ton by him, a writer and an essayist named Jeremiah Sullivan, and he wrote a book called Pulpad, Essays on Various Things. I always like to have a couple of essay books on, on my nightstand, doing an Ann Patchett one right now. Sullivan, for one of his investigative essays, went to Creation Festival or Fest. I, I wasn't familiar with it apart from this essay, but it's a, okay, so people have been to Creation Fest. So it, it's in Pennsylvania, and it's this really, really big Christian music festival with, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going to it, and Sullivan went, who's not a person, he grew up in the South, he's not a person of, grew up around faith, is not a person of faith, to kind of get what's really going on at Creation Fest. And this is what he said, I kind of liked it. They were really nice, and it's one of those like camp out festivals, like Bonnaroo or what, where, where you're, you're living, at Woodstock, etc., where you're living in these, you know, masses of people on top of each other sort of situations. This is what Sullivan wrote. I've been to a lot of huge public events in this country, writing about sports or whatever, and one thing they all had in common was this weird implicit enmity that American males in particular seem to carry around with them much of the time. If you spend enough time in the stadium concourses, for example, you feel it, something darker than machismo something a little wounded and a little sneering, and just plain ready for bad things to happen. But it wasn't here. It wasn't. I looked for it, and I couldn't find it. In the three days I spent at creation, I saw not one fight, heard not one word spoken in anger, felt at no time even mildly harassed, and in fact met many people who were exceptionally kind. 
Yes, they were mostly all of the same race, all believed the same stuff and weren't drinking, but there was also 100,000 of them. Now, that was written a decade ago. The world has gotten a lot nastier since then, but I hope something like that would still be true. And apart from 100,000 people out there, what are some next steps that you can take to draw down your anger? Understanding that the less angry you are, the more you love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.